0: John, welcome to CMO Pulse. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, I, I know we, we had a good pre-chat, but um, welcome. Thank you for joining. And um, tell us, what's going on with the potato that the average person needs to know about
1: right now? Well, thank you, Tanya, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, what is going on with the potato that's really interesting is how strong demand is. Uh, you know, it, it actually was sort of the produce department darling during the the pandemic. And and a lot of people turned to the potato as a good source of nutrition, but also as comfort and as just something that they could rely on during that period. So we really saw quite an interesting shift in in demand uh, from food service to retail and really positive responses from consumers. So that's very exciting.
0: And I want to talk specifically about your your role as a CMO. But before we even get to that, can you um, help our viewers and listeners understand? Tell me a little bit about um, the organization and sort of the advocacy and like what you actually do to, um, right. you know, to to keep to keep my son eating potatoes.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So the National Potato Promotion Board is our formal name because we are a federally mandated. Marketing and Promotion Board on behalf of the potato growers in the United States. And so we work on their behalf. So I have 2,500 bosses who grow potatoes, and they all want us to do everything we can to increase demand for potatoes. And that takes a lot of different roles, of course. we, we You have your basic marketing aspects, but then you also have a lot of Uh, misperceptions, particularly in the nutrition space, so we need to spend a lot of time working on nutritional facts, doing research in nutrition, uh, countering that, And, and so our role is to do what the growers can't do individually, but collectively they come together, they fund us, we help promote their product both domestically here in the U.S. as well as internationally, and we work in a lot of different policy and research areas as well to bolster the image of the potato if you will
0: and when you think about that sort of now with your marketing hat on very specifically I guess what are your goals how do you know when something's going because there's this ultimate thing of like I'm eating more potatoes I'm ordering more at a restaurant or whatnot but there's a big gap between you know where you start and sort of where that ends up can you tell us a little bit about what that
1: process looks like for you Sure, and, and you sort of touched on that. You know, we don't sell anything, obviously, so we can't look at at our sales as an organization. So we need to rely upon the sales figures and the uh, demand that is happening on a national basis. So it's it's a very broad perspective there. We also, of course, look very much at sentiment at attitudes about and usage of potatoes. We do research every year uh, on an annual basis, plus in between that to really understand what sentiment is, what people are thinking about potatoes. So from how we structure our programs is the overall goals are, are, you know, total sales, both retail, domestic. We look at what's happening in terms of production and how strong demand is for that production, and is it continuing to go up? But then within each program, of course, we have to have very specific goals uh, that are always based around people taking actions, on people changing behavior, not anything to do with did we do something, that's irrelevant, but did people's behavior change in response to what we did?
0: How is, uh, is this role, I know you've done a lot for, you know, for, uh, for the potato and it, it must be just really fun, interesting work. How does this differ to other roles that you've had and what was your learning curve like as, as you sort of jumped in there?
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I came to the potato board from the USDA, from the Foreign Agricultural Service, at USDA, where I was uh, worked as an ag attaché in Cote d'Ivoire, and I did a lot of work on behalf of all of U.S. agriculture. So we were promoting U.S. agriculture, and then I very much had to quickly narrow down into focusing purely on the potato. But so that was a big change there, and a lot of learning about potatoes, and I'm still learning. I'm still learning about the potato, about its uses. About the industry, but there was also things that were very similar because I was what we were doing for all of agriculture obviously still applies to one product, and so uh, the the concepts around how you market a commodity and how you work with those that are in between your growers and the ultimate consumer that transferred very well. And it was something we really built upon.
0: And a lot of the marketing conversations that I have talk about market share and, you know, competitive conquesting and others. So in your world, like, are you taking down cauliflower or broccoli or are you thinking of share of plate? Or like, how do you how do you even begin to sort of think about that from a, you know, from a share of mind or share of, you know, share of consumption standpoint?
1: Right. So share and market share internationally is very straightforward. You know, we can look at exports to Japan and see where we stand and very much fight for our market share in that market. So that's that's straightforward. Domestically, it's much more. It, it is different because we're really not trying to take down broccoli, like you said, uh, or sweet potatoes, or what have you. Um, but we, right, which aren't even we,
0: really potatoes. I mean, let's just start with the brandy.
1: <laughs> that's true. They, 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 are a whole different tuber. That's for darn sure. Uh, but uh, our, so we don't get concern ourselves that much with the market share aspect, though. Of course, if people are wandering off and trying new things, you know, you, you the the number of options available to people to eat these days. Is just astronomically larger than it used to be. I mean, nobody was eating quinoa that long ago. And, and now it's a, a standard. We've just been doing some consumer studies, and I can't tell you how many times people say, Oh, yeah, well, now I'm eating quinoa. And you know, so it really is interesting. Um, so that competitive aspect does play a role in that it all those are going to impact our our role, but rather than, and, and part of this is the regulatory aspect of USDA oversight, is we cannot disparage any other food. That, that's rule number one in what we do. Um, so we don't, and, and there's no benefit in that anyway. Right. We wouldn't yeah. want to anyway. I mean, uh,
0: vegetables and fruits are so underconsumed anyway that it's like you sort of a rising tide to some degree, right?
1: And that's exactly what I was just going to say, is that we just want to get more vegetable consumption across the board. And if we can do that, our role in that, we are the number one vegetable. So we're going to continue to go up.
0: Can you um, talk a little bit about, you know, now I sort of want to switch specifically to where we are in time, where we are in history. Um, And, you know, you mentioned that potato consumption, you know, has been sort of one of the quote unquote beneficiaries of, you know, of some of the change in lifestyle that people have gone through. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, how has your role changed? How have you thought about um, your team and, you know, just your general practices, given the last, you know, let's call it two years that that we've had now?
1: Sure. Um, because we do so much work with the intermediaries, with the food service operators, with the retailers. And a lot of that work traditionally was done face-to-face. And so that was a huge change in how we operated, going from this in-person traveling a lot to a virtual approach and trying to reach a large number of people with succinct messages uh, with calls to action that we weren't able—you know—you used to be able to do it over a handshake, do it, do it in person, and so that I think really was the biggest change. And the thing that I find fascinating about it is, I think it ultimately, in a lot of ways, is a better approach because we are able to reach much broader audience than we used to be able to. We can still have impactful conversations. We can hopefully drive these to a conversation like we're having today, which sure, we, we haven't actually met each other face to face, but I think we could have a very good discussion here around what it is we want to try to accomplish. I could convince you that changing the assortment of your potatoes at your, you know, in your retail operation would help increase sales just as well as if I was standing next to you in the store. So. It'll never replace that personal and we certainly hope to be able to get back out a little bit, but I think we are more effective now than we were in terms of the number of people we can initially reach and the quality of the information we can provide. Because, you know, we've shot a lot of videos. Our chef has done tons of videos and getting those out there has been really, really uh, impactful.
0: Yeah, one one theme that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of what I've been hearing in many of these conversations is this reframing of what's possible, stuff that, you know, prior to the pandemic if someone said, hey, we're just going to cut all travel or not do any more Mm -hmm. in-person meetings and I need you to maybe achieve more or whatever, you just would have gone impossible, ridiculous, Mm -hmm. you're crazy. And, you know, what I've been hearing is it's really shifted that paradigm around what is and isn't critical to be in person. And ultimately in in many cases, and it sounds like in yours, led to better slash different productivity and and the way to think about it. So, you know, so you reference, you've been shooting a lot of digital video um, and put a lot into content. Can you talk a little bit about how you um, have approached social media in particular um, when it comes to getting the message out there and, um, you know, educating and, and doing a lot of what you, I'm sure, hope to do with your video content?
1: Right. So just as obviously everybody, social media has been key to what we've been doing, uh, both from a B2B and a B2C perspective. And so um, we've embraced a, a large number of platforms, obviously slightly different, but Facebook uh, we really found that, that YouTube has been extremely effective. Uh, we're now exploring TikTok from a consumer perspective. Be interesting to see how that goes. I, I think actually could be quite, quite interesting. And um, there's been some TikTok folks that have focused on potatoes and have gotten quite popular here in the, in the last year. So uh, we're excited about that opportunity to continue to take this, these videos all of our messaging, we pretty much try to do it digitally these days. We pretty much try to do it all in a video format when we can, and either get to consumers that way, or again, reach the the trade too. Because one of the things that you can never forget is that people that you are working with are also just consumers. They're just people. And they have the same tendencies, the same habits of rolling through their phone, of looking at things, and you got to catch their attention. You got to have something that they're willing to watch, is short, but you know, gains their attention and gets them to click through to where you want them to go.
0: I want to double click on that because I think that's a really important point. And I, I assume in this case, you're talking about some perceived differences between a B2B approach versus a straight consumer approach. So we don't talk enough about B2B. Can you? T- Tell me more about your approach and you know how you've broken through that kind of pain band boundary of saying, hey, marketing to businesses is just marketing to humans who happen to be in these businesses. Can you can you flesh that out a little more? Because I feel like everyone goes, yeah, social is great for consumers, but oh, like B2B, I don't really know. And you're like, hey, guess what? Same people, just it's just their jobs, you know, or <laughs> it's just, it's that.
1: Exactly. And that that is and and I think probably the biggest challenge in that space is the targeting. Because you know, you can do some geofencing sometimes, like we've done. Okay, well, the here's the headquarters for this retailer. We're going to geofence around there or what have you. But um the targeting is the biggest challenge. But one of the things that helps you in that aspect is that they're all reading the newsletters and the publications for that industry, and you can tie into that. So we really utilize the industry publications and their social media platforms to put our social media that is directed at those uh, business contacts in front of them. That's how you overcome that targeting aspect. And then with the content, you know, sure, it has to be factual. It has to, you got to have... Important information, and that's why we do a lot of research to help substantiate that yes, if you do change the way you uh, display your potatoes, or if you do add a second potato item, you're going to get this increase in sales at at food service, or you know, here's the right way to package your fries as opposed to in a clamshell where they end up all soggy, you know, whatever it is. You got to have good content, but then, as you just said, they're people you have to put it in a way that catches their attention that's interesting. We use a lot of influencers as well. That's another area that is very beneficial, particularly on food service. We work with chefs who have good followings, who can gain attention. So if we wanna focus on the pizza industry to get more potatoes on uh, at pizzerias, we hired a couple of really leaders in that space who have great followings. They developed these videos <clears throat> and they put forward this content and then people are following them anyway. And it's just a natural connection.
0: Oh, I think that, that's, that's a really great perspective around that. Um, so now let's talk a little more about you. So prior to doing what you're doing right now, and it, as you reflect back on your career, um, and you, if you had to isolate either the most influential or one of the most influential decisions that you've made, what is that, and why did it have such an impact on who you are today?
1: I I think if I feel indulge me I'll, I'll make I'll do two but the okay. first one uh, was a decision that I made jointly with my wife and that was for me to leave, leave the foreign service and to for us to return to the U.S. and to leave D.C. and move out to Colorado, and, and then that led to my focusing on potatoes. But that, that decision, because I had studied to be, in essence, a, a diplomat as well as an ag economist, and that was, I was, you know, it, I had achieved that and I was, was going to move forward, uh, but it just didn't make the most sense for our family as a whole, uh, certainly for my wife's career. And so that decision to um, let go of that career, focus on one commodity and really help to move that product forward, I'm really glad because rather than tangentially helping a lot of things, really being committed to one industry and now it's over 20 years, has been very rewarding and the changes and the progress that we've made. And some of these things are long-term. I mean, we're not looking at quarterly reports. I mean, getting potatoes into Japan took 25 years. You know, it started before I got there and we got it over the, the finish line. So these things are long processes and, and I'm really glad to be able to have committed to them and seen them through. And
0: what was it like? for? Uh- for many people who I think particularly, you know, during or to the extent that we're post-pandemic post, are looking at their lives and evaluating what's important, um, where in the world they want to be, you know, whether they want to keep pushing at what they're doing or potentially switching, how did you make that decision and know that it was time to potentially pivot away from something that you were doing incredibly well at, but maybe you wondered if there was, if there was something else.
1: Yeah. I think that for me, ultimately it's who I'm working for and what I'm working on that I would say people need to think about because um it, you know not everybody's going to get to work for a bunch of potato growers but you know these are are really solid people and, and the connection that you make with them and that long-term relationship you know they're multi-generational farm families and I've now become part of that multi-generational process I'm now working with the sons and daughters of the folks that I started with when, when I began. So finding a place that you can really believe in the people. And in this case, the product, I mean, we've talked about, you know, how wonderful the potato is. So it's something you can believe in for sure. That I think is more important than anything because the other aspects of, you know, can I work remote or can I, you know, sure. That's all important. But if you're, working on behalf of a cause let's just say that you don't really believe in it's going to end up being pretty hollow even if you have the greatest work schedule ever
0: yeah and as you think about your pathway to to cmo right now um definitely wasn't super traditional um what about like at what point did you know that that was the right role for you and how did you prepare for um for the role that you have
1: yeah, that, that's interesting because that was sort of the second inflection point is uh, at the point that we made the decision to merge the international and domestic marketing programs uh, at the board and for me to take over that CMO role in charge of both of those. And I had very little experience with the domestic aspect and, and the traditional marketing um, components of that and i think what made me feel very comfortable in making that decision was my depth of knowledge of the product and how to successfully bridge those gaps between the producer and ultimately the consumer and to look at marketing on that continuum and not just oh well we gotta spend our whole time putting out recipes so consumers have more recipes. If you don't bridge that gap, if the retailer doesn't believe in your product, if the food service operator, if the food manufacturer doesn't believe in it, you're never going to get to that consumer place you want to be anyway. And we've been so successful with that internationally that I felt very confident in bringing that process to the domestic side. And and it's definitely worked out, uh, I think for the most part, really well.
0: And if you could... um... If you could give yourself one piece of advice, go back to the start of your career or early in your career, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Um, I think that that what I would reinforce to myself would be do what you love and what you find interesting and you have passion for over purely trying to make the most money or get the highest title and I, I think that I kind of followed that but really reinforcing that at an early age uh, is is the advice I would have given
0: yeah well there's there's pressure right to to not um, only do what you love but um,
1: exactly
0: and, and so um, what's as you as you look out to like 2022, you know, I know that when we discussed uh, things prior to today's conversation, you know, you mentioned there were certain cuisines. I think you mentioned, you know, uh, pizza restaurants and maybe like certain different cuisines like Chinese food where there's such a delta between how the food is consumed or how your product is consumed in uh, in country versus on, on American menus. What are some of the big challenges that you're looking forward to um, as you look out into, into 2022?
1: Yeah, I see sort of three main challenges that that we're really focused on. And uh, the first one's pretty straightforward, and that is just trying to lock in those gains we made at retail and with consumers uh, that that did embrace our product. I think we can do that. You know, there's going to be a little slippage there, but that I feel relatively confident that we can kind of lock that in at uh, all levels of that chain. Uh, the other one that is a big challenge is helping our industry and the food service industry adapt to this new environment. You know, mm-hmm. I don't see full-scale, uh, full-service restaurants, the the white tablecloth. I mean, they're coming back, but it's never going to be as significant as it was business travel. Is going to be down probably for maybe ever, but certainly for a while. And so those expense account thing, and that was a big part, you know, big old giant baked potatoes. We sold a lot of them. And so that, that adjustment of our industry to, and the food service industry to a new approach to all this takeout and delivery, making sure we have products that fit in that. And then, as you mentioned, continuing to pursue those areas where we don't, have as great a penetration, but where we do have opportunities and where um, the cuisine such as Chinese cuisine can really embrace the potato, it just hasn't done so very much uh, to date in, in the US version uh, of Chinese. So that that food service challenge is not gonna be easy and and, and, uh, and we're really concerned about that. And then the third challenge is that, um, nutrition and nutrition policy and the blending in sustainability. There's a lot of very um, good objectives there. I mean, we all want the, the population to be healthier. We all want the, the world to be able to sustain that population from a food production perspective. But we find that there are a lot of people that are grandstanding, that are putting forward their idea their view on the world marginally based on true scientific evidence. And so while we all wanna pursue those goals, it needs to be done based on what is best for everyone and what is gonna work, not on what's gonna raise one institution or one person's uh, role in this process higher than others, just because that's their Uh, egotistic shall we say objective as opposed to perhaps what is truly best so that's going to be a big challenge and obviously is much bigger than just the potato industry but we have to do our part uh, to put forward the science into that discussion
0: yeah well and it's you know by no means as sort of grave an issue for topics such as misinformation and other sorts of things but there's certainly you know what I'm a huge advocate of social media I You know, founded a company. Company tracking it. So I'm obviously a fan, but at the same time, the um, the potential for partial attention. You know, maybe not fully substantiated data, particularly to do with nutrition, where a lot of people, you know, claim to be expert when perhaps they're they're slightly less. So, so I'm sure that that keeps um, that keeps you busy. Uh, what is your favorite potato dish, and what is a potato recipe that you would?
1: like to try but haven't if any yeah. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> um you know the whole favorite potato dish it, it obviously keeps evolving but the uh, one of the things that I've really have enjoyed and my wife and I have enjoyed recently is we call them smash potatoes or smashed potato where we uh you just boil up small potatoes any reds yellows whites whatever but relatively small ones but don't boil them fully so they're just a little undercooked and then you get a hot skittle skillet hot grill and flatten them and Ooh. then just with skin on them off on, on both sides and finish that cooking but it stays really moist inside but crunchy on the outside so uh, that that's our current favorite dish, though there's obviously a lot of them that we pursue. Um, one that, I, I guess, a recipe that, that I haven't tried, our chef is always coming up with incredible recipes and, and they're, they're fascinating, but one he just put forward that I'd really like to try is shrimp and potato grits. Oh. Yeah, so you make the grits out of potatoes Ooh. instead of corn. And and he just, he pummels my uh, um, my feed with these recipe pictures and I never get to taste them for the most part. Uh, so <laughs> There's one
0: downside of being virtual. <laughs>
1: exactly. He's at his house where, you know. So you can't we
0: mandate aren't... a rule that for me to publish this video, I need to sample it first. So. Right,
1: right. <laughs> But I'd really like to try that one. And the his shrimps look really good. And, and that that potato grits, I think that could be a that could be a real yeah, one. I like
0: it. I like it. I've never I've never heard of that. Because I feel like whenever you think of the potato in that form, you always think about mashed potatoes. You don't think of it with sort of texture, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I'm not sure how he got it, but I mean I was just blowing up the photo and you could see the little chunks in there. So I'm I'm gonna have to find out more.
0: I love it. Um, any last things that you'd like to share um, that are things which perhaps for viewers or listeners who want to learn more that you you know want them to understand or that you you know wish wish that they'd know when they're when they're learning more about your your product.
1: Well, about our product, I think that one of the things I I really do hope people realize is that our industry is made up of 2,500 family farms. Uh, And these growers are folks that have been dedicated to the industry their whole lives. Most of them, like I said, are are multi-generational. And they are doing everything they can to maintain the long-term viability of the agricultural sector of the potato and that they are Fully invested in this nutritionally dense vegetable that they're producing and really hope that consumers can enjoy it, but it's those people behind the product that I don't think people realize very often is something I would hope to be able to convey on top of, of, of the other stuff for sure.
0: Fantastic. John, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. I really look forward to uh, checking out more of the videos and finding new and improved ways to, uh, to consume everybody's favorite vegetable. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It was a real pleasure.